1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: It's Tuesday, July 18th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Forgive Donald Trump. Here's a man who garnered almost 63 million votes against an opponent who got almost 65 million votes, but he still won. So it's no wonder he would offer this assessment of political math. We have 52 people. We had four no's. Now we might have had another one somewhere in there, but essentially the vote would have been pretty close to, if you look at it, 48 to 4. Well, John McCain's not back from surgery, so it would have been 47. And here's the crazy thing. It wouldn't be 47 to 4, actually. It'd be 47 to 52. 47 to 52, which is, of course... The biggest win since Ronald Reagan. He's got Chris Kobach to head a commission to prove him right about the vote tally. So now that repeal and replace has gone down in the Senate, how about just repeal? Just repeal. A terrific, big, beautiful repeal bill that, no, that one died too. Three Republican senators, Murkowski, Collins, and Capito, they're against it. Or, as President Trump might point out, that vote, that's a 47 to 0 vote. If you don't include the Democrats, Or the ladies, well, there were two lady Republicans who voted for it. Well, you also can't include John McCain, who's ailing. Maybe a lot of the other Republicans who would have defected if these three hadn't already killed it. You know, I was just spending a lot of mental energy to try to conceptualize, repeal, and not replace. See, the problem with the repeal and replace bills were that there were all these iterations some passed the house some were considered by the senate and they would have thrown 24 23 22 million people off healthcare 22 million that was the latest that was the least mean version of what the senate was considering but repeal with no replace that sees the fact that what killed those bills were essentially those big figures those in 20 million 20 something million people without healthcare so repeal and not replace says aha We'll take 32 million people off of healthcare within the next 10 years. You know, it's funny. Let's say you're in an airplane and boom, the airplane disappears. That's repeal. So you go and you reach for your parachute, but it's not there either. That's repeal without replace. Let me get even more basic for you if you're trying to conceptualize the intellectual glory that is repeal without replace. I think of Letterman. No, not David Letterman. The Electro Company TV show had a skit called Letterman when I was a kid. So cute. Faster than a rolling O. Stronger than silent E. Able to leap capital T in a single bound. It's a word. It's a plan. It's Letterman! So someone would get into a situation where a letter would be changed. Let's say a pickle would turn into tickle, and then Letterman would save the day by ripping a letter off his sweater. He always seemed to be wearing the exact right letter. 1975 Reddit would have had a field day with that one. Anyway, he changed the word back. So in this particular episode, a woman is eating a pear, but it turns into a bear. Let's see what Letterman does. Ripping the P off his varsity sweater and placing it over the B, he changes the bear, Back into a pear. Okay, so the bear pear, that was the healthcare market. Letterman not only takes away the B in bear, that's repeal, he turns it into a P for pear, that's replace. If it were repeal without replace, he'd take away the B, so you wouldn't have a bear, but what you would have is an ear. And let me tell you, I've eaten pears. I've also eaten bear, they're kind of gamey, but I've never eaten an ear. So that demonstrates why repeal without replace goes nowhere, though it does transform Trump into a bit of a rump, and that is a usual place to be. On the show today, with the domestic agenda going so swimmingly, let's check in overseas. Things are quite terrible there too. But first, amid talk that the gyre is widening and that society is spinning out of control, we have a new theory a new theory that things are different, but no better. Economist and public intellectual Tyler Cowen says we've become so timid, so tepid, so risk averse, so scared that we're stagnating. And now a masterclass on the complacent class. Angry voters, they're not going to take it anymore. Protests over cop shootings, the Occupy movement, the Tea Party movement, a world in turmoil, American carnage. Well, here's another idea. The complacent class, the self-defeating quest for the American dream, that we're less up in arms, that we're less adventuresome, that we're less likely to revolt. It is Tyler Cowen's newest book. He is the author in the past of Average is Over, Powering America Beyond the Age of the Great Stagnation. Before that, the Great Stagnation. They form a trilogy which essentially asks and answers, what is going on with America? Hello, Tyler. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. So first, let's, let's lay the predicate and acknowledge... I guess, the uh, rhetorical straw man that I set up. I I thought that Trump represented that everyone was angry and revolting.
1: I think social media has become the new opiate of the masses. If you imagine something like the Trump phenomenon in the late 1960s or 1970s, there would be massive public demonstrations every week or every weekend calling for impeachment or greater investigation. But right now, it's amazing to me how much Americans will put up with We try to make our lives safe. We don't want disruptions. And if something weird happens, we just, you know, hold it at some distance and more or less go about our business and pretend it's not that big a deal.
0: Well, there's some of that. I mean, there's more demonstrations than, I guess, when the book went to print. Does that make you tweak your thesis at all? Uh, Not yet. I do think in some
1: longer run, you know, mass demonstrations will erupt at a large scale as things along some dimension get worse. But right now, I think we're still in the denial mode, whether it's climate change or the slowing down of our economy or the disappearance of real wage growth or crises in foreign policy. We're still focused more on, you know, building up our homes, having things sent to us by Amazon, watching Netflix streaming. And it's a very different mentality in 2017.
0: So, why, why is social media the opiate of the masses? I mean, I mostly agree with you, but some proportion of demonstrating must be reflected in organizing online. You just discount that entirely.
1: I think a lot of it becomes a substitute for doing something like what actually seems to matter is calling your representative. Uh, I don't see people so much more engaged in doing that than they had been in the past, and you know, both sides do social media, a lot of it cancels each other out, and the notion that you have like a major civil rights movement happen Uh, in American history. That happened in, in physical space. It happened on the streets. There was a sense of people putting themselves at risk. And we're moving further from that tradition still. I do think eventually it has to come back, though.
0: What about Black Lives Matter? There was a lot of people out on the street. There was a social media component. And, you know, if you look at the demographics, it was a younger movement. So that's going to be concentrated in social media. But there were a lot of mass protests and there was a big backlash. Both got us some body cams and some progress, but also laid the foundation for Trump. So how does uh, the Black Lives Matter protest actual movement fit into your thesis?
1: Well, notice the words you're using past tense, was and were. Black Lives Matter wasn't very long ago. Uh, I was a fan of the movement, but so much of it has faded, just dwindled away. The ability to get people outraged at what happened didn't really take off through most of America. Again, there's just a sense of acquiescence. There's a greater passivity today. And you see it in many different forms of economic data, including like how often we switch jobs or how often we move house across state lines. It gets back to this idea of most people feeling pretty comfortable and just putting up with a lot of injustices. Are we wrong to feel comfortable? It's individually rational, right? (laughs) But when it happens collectively, it is bad for the United States. So I think we're we're morally wrong, but it makes sense that people are this way, right? I mean, there's something driving this and it's mostly self-interest.
0: Well, let's think for a second about Black Lives Matter or the Tea Party, the things they were up in arms about and objecting to, and perhaps not as forcefully as past mass movements, the stakes you could argue aren't as high. I don't want to diminish how horrible it is, uh, police abuses. But when you compare the civil rights marches in 1964, that was for full citizenship. That was for everything. That was for things like the basic rights, right to vote. And so much progress has been made. Maybe it's inevitable that this small but vitally important part of civil rights would not gain as much mass traction in the streets.
1: Those are very good points, and I would stress that our complacency so often does stem from actual success in solving problems, and that success is a good thing, but once you're in a position of being continually complacent, your successes ebb away, uh, your social strengths deteriorate, and eventually you get to the point where your new problems actually are as bad as the old ones, and that's what a lot of the narrative of the book is about.
0: Right, so what's the evidence of that? Where are things showing up as pretty bad because we've become complacent?
1: Well, I think the single biggest piece of evidence, and I still find this stunning, is that real wages for the typical male worker are lower today as we measure them than they were in the very late 1960s. So that's, you know, over 50 years, and measured wages for men essentially have gone down rather than up. That's a sign of our stagnancy, the failures of our educational system, that in a lot of ways we haven't innovated very much. No one at the time thought that's what the next 55 years would bring, but that's what we've seen.
0: Because, I mean, a big part of this, and you can't argue with this, people just aren't moving as much. America, a vast continent, pioneers, people on the move, not anymore.
1: There's no more frontier. The pioneer spirit largely has vanished. I think a lot of immigrants to this country still have it, which is great, but we're moving across state lines at a rate 50% less than what we did in the immediate post-war era. And that's, again reflecting our lack of dynamism, to some extent causing it. It's a sign there aren't that many new up-and-coming parts of the country worth moving to. I mean, Silicon Valley is great, but most Americans either don't have the skills to work there or they can't afford to pay the rent.
0: Yeah, Steve Chase wants to start other tech into incubators. This, to me, was an interesting and new idea in politics. So most of the tech development is happening in two or three places. Why not incubate it in Appalachia or the Great Plains or somewhere like that?
1: I think it's hard to get talented people to move to a lot of parts of this country, but there's really nowhere else that's come close to the achievements of Silicon Valley. That's a kind of one-off. It's the biggest source of recent dynamism we have. But what's striking to me is how few American workers actually have been touched by it so far, and you see that in the wage data.
0: Yeah, you do acknowledge that there are some rational reasons not to move, and a lot of them is that maybe Akron isn't that much different from Pittsburgh, is different from Des Moines.
1: That's right. The more you have service sector jobs, you know, malls are a bit the same everywhere. The more you're ordering online, you know, like why go from Cleveland to Denver, You find out pretty early in life where you want to live. You tend to stay there. Again, this has some very positive features, but when it characterizes the economy as a whole, labor markets adjust more slowly. We come out of recessions more slowly. People end up more frustrated. You get these like stuck clusters of labor that don't have much of a future, maybe abuse opioids. So again, individual rationality, but bad social consequences.
0: Now, I have read a lot of data that says, I think it was specifically looking at Appalachia, that a real reason that people don't move, you know, why don't you move to where the jobs are? The complaint is there are no jobs here. So out of boredom, people uh, take opioids. A lot of the reason is that they're stuck there caring for family members. So it's very hard for people to get out of that situation, maybe because the social safety net isn't doing what it should.
1: Uh, That's true. But keep in mind, in the past, a lot of people have moved with family members moving was cheaper. It was easier to do. Rents in major cities were much more affordable. It was easier to get space. So I think this crisis of just the high rent in productive cities is messing up a lot of different parts of American social life, including family relations, people ending up getting stuck, feeling frustrated.
0: Is is most of the complacency, especially with what we're talking about, people not moving, can most of it be put on the individual for lacking that fiber and spirit, or is most of it structural kind of conspiring to keep the individual in place?
1: I think it's almost all structural. You know, today's people are are no less worthy or no more immoral than any other group of people in the past. Uh, But we are wealthier. We're more interested in safety. Uh, We feel we've succeeded at a lot of things that makes us complacent. We have structural problems in our economy concentration of business has gone up somewhat, measured innovation, other than the tech sector is down quite a bit. And those are all structural factors. And of course, people respond to that. So I don't think we should blame it on any group of people or the millennials or the baby boomers. In a sense, we're the victims of our own success.
0: I would imagine if you looked at the factors keeping people in place and compared it to the dynamic class, which are the immigrants, I wouldn't Guess that immigrants don't have family members they have to care for as much they don't have the things keeping them in place They just they just take more risks for a variety of reasons
1: And they come to this country knowing they're in for a huge adjustment right no matter what so the idea They have to make another adjustment say to move to another state Doesn't feel that bad to them because they're already giving up a language cuisine family connections uh, Their status in the home country. So they're sort of ready for more by selection
0: Have you seen any evidence that over generations, complacency sets in more? I would think first generation, than second generation immigrants, even if they grew up in one place, would be more likely to move, say, than people who've been in some place for five generations.
1: Sure. And of course, we're all immigrants by origin, or for the most part. So uh, the people who are native-born Americans, they're themselves a different kind of immigrant class, but with many more generations. Rates of starting businesses tend to be highest for the first arrivers, for instance.
0: What government policies, and I know you trend towards the libertarian, but what government policies should be enacted to counteract this?
1: You know, I think there's a lot we could and should do on a bipartisan basis that doesn't require any particular political view. Most of all, make it easier to move around by having cheaper, high-density building in America's major cities. I think our educational system actually should be less concerned with safety and less about you know, test, 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 and stuffing homework down the throats of children Mm -hmm. and letting them be more free and imagine more and be more creative, and in a sense, take some more chances. And I think just our our social mentality as to what's considered acceptable. We do need to look to the past a bit. We ought to learn from our immigrants. We ought to learn a bit from China. Uh, These do not have to be partisan political issues. We ought to have our government spend more on innovation, I would
0: say. Before I ask you a couple of political questions, just Get into a little detail about the marijuana part of this. I thought that was fascinating.
1: Well, I think it's striking. Like, the, you know, the drug of today, marijuana, it's a drug that puts people to sleep. It's a complacent drug. I do think it should be legal. People should not be thrown in jail for smoking pot. But that so many people want to do it and be passive and in some sense withdraw from a lot of reality, to me personally, that's somewhat disturbing. I think it's a negative cultural trend.
0: The complacency, does that play into a phenomenon that uh, helped Trump, which is people from, say, West Virginia have this pride of place, I guess would be the nice way to say it, about West Virginia. And so when he would talk about coal mining in West Virginia, it was very resonant. I thought that he talked more about you are from that place and that place is good. And, and that really, and that also played out in Brexit. And I thought that's been more powerful in the last few years than any other time in my life, and I wonder if uh, the complacent class argument plays into that.
1: I very much agree. it's a very backward-looking vision. You know, the slogan was "Make America Great again." It was not, you know, Kennedy's new frontier or Johnson's Great Society. Reagan had "New Morning for America," all about new and growth and progress. And this is backward-looking. Brexit is backward-looking. Hillary Clinton's campaign was fairly backward-looking. To her own husband, the successes of Obama, not really many big changes in mind, a lot of marginal tweaks. And uh, when Trump talks about infrastructure, it's not about the smart grid or online education. It's, you know, old things like, let's fix our tunnels and repair our bridges. Not not a bad idea. Uh, but when that's the whole vision, to me, that's extremely
0: underwhelming. Yeah, I'd sign up for the old uh, physical stuff or any progress at all right now at this point. Yes, but we're not
1: even getting that much.
0: Right. Are there real-life politicians who excite you?
1: I would say I worry more about the voters than the politicians. We have a lot of politicians who are smart, honest people on both sides. And when the voters are ready for them to, to take their rightful place, it will happen. But I don't see it going on right now so much.
0: Tyler Cowen holds the Holbert L Harris Chair in Economics at George Mason University. Among his many many works is his notebooks, The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me, Tyler.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And now the spiel. Let's check in on the wild and the wacky in international relations. It's spanning the world. Actually, these aren't sports highlights. They're diplomatic developments. But they feature plenty of unforced errors and own goals. And you've got to ask, what is our goal? Because listen to some of the initiatives undertaken by Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. Foreign Policy reports that he is shuttering the War Crimes Office. He's, quote, downgrading the U.S. campaign against mass atrocities, shuttering the Foggy Bottom Office that worked for two decades to hold war criminals accountable. His uh, office informed the guy who was running that that he'd be reassigned. And he's told staffers that they're going to other positions, too. Uh, I'll read more from foreign policy. The decision to close the office comes at a time when America's top diplomat has been seeking to reorganize the State Department to concentrate on what he sees as key priorities, pursuing economic opportunities for American businesses and strengthening U.S. military prowess. The changes are coming at the expense of programs that promote human rights and fight world poverty, which have been targeted for steep budget cuts. Oh, gosh. Now, next, the advocacy group Air Wars reports that at least 2,300 civilians died from coalition strikes overseen by the Obama White House. That's 80 every month in Iraq and Syria. But as of July 13th, 2,200 civilians have been killed, which is 360 a month in those two countries. So 180-something days of the Trump administration, we've got almost the same amount of civilians killed as we did during the entirety of the Obama administration. Now, there are reasons for this. One is that the fighting has increased in Raqqa and Mosul, and I'll get to that in a second. But also, Trump has demanded that the U.S. military drop a lot of restrictions, which used to protect civilians on the battlefield, right? The gloves are off. This is a consequence of the gloves being off. Secretary of Defense Mattis denies that this is what happened, but the count is the count. My take on this is, yes, gains have been made. ISIS has largely fled Mosul. The fighting for Raqqa goes on. But what if there's backsliding? What if ISIS reorganizes as a guerrilla group without a stronghold, but manages to inflict enough damage? I'm just raising something that no one else is, that there have been gains. They could be temporary. Let's just think of the costs. I don't think a lot of Americans realize that there has been this substantial uptick in the loss of innocent life to U.S. bombs and munitions. So I thought I'd note it. Now, an area where not bombs, but the bomb dominates all concerned is Korea, the Koreas. So what South Korea has done is they've attempted to reach out to the North Koreans for telephone talks, just to let's start diplomacy. The North so far is rebuffing their actions, but a new prime minister was elected and he favors restarting bilateral talks for the first time in a couple of years. What could go wrong? Well, Sean Spicer doesn't like it. Speaking for the administration, he says that any type of conditions that would have to be met are clearly far away from where we are now. The Japanese are also reluctant to embrace talks. But don't the South Koreans have a lot more skin in this game, a lot more skin just meters from the border with their neighbor to the north? If you think that I am unfairly writing off Trump's reaction as ill-informed, let's talk about Qatar for a second. So Rex Tillerson has been in the Gulf trying to repair relations, and this is what we know now. U.S. intelligence reports that the events that prompted the Egyptians and the Saudis and the UAE from breaking with Qatar and trying to punish Qatar was a hack, a UAE, either state-sponsored or endorsed hack. The UAE spread a hoax that the Emir of Qatar had endorsed Hamas, had spoke kindly of Iran, and using that as a cover, these other countries broke with Qatar, banned Qatari media. What does that mean? Qatari media is al jazeera Al Jazeera is very critical of these closed societies, these repressive countries. Qatar is pretty repressive too, and Al Jazeera doesn 't mention that, but this was the this was the fiction that led to this diplomatic row, and a complicating matter. Which right now, Rex Tillerson is trying to undo, is that Trump endorsed it as soon as it happened, before he even knew that it was a hack that caused all the trouble. He tweeted, Good to see the Saudi Arabia visit with the king and 50 countries already paying off. They said they would take a hard line on funding extremism, and all reference was pointing to Qatar. Perhaps this will be the beginning to the end of the horror of terrorism. So there goes Tillerson trying to patch things up, and Trump's tweets aren't helping. Yes. The Saudis did hang big banners of Donald Trump up and they gave him a magnificent reception. There was dancing. There was a lack of protesting. There were much nicer things done for him than Obama. Still, this doesn't mean that a knee-jerk, ill-thought-out, ill-informed, anti qatar response is in the best interest of the United States. It is perhaps not surprising, though, that Trump would not swiftly rebuke or even acknowledge a foreign power spreading false information against a rival, especially when the foreign power gave you a compliment. There is one bit of progress in the world, and Donald Trump deserves credit. President Trump is expected to recertify that Iran is complying with guidelines set by that nuclear deal reached two years ago with President Obama, a deal President Trump on the campaign once promised to tear up. Look, Trump also said, that he's great at taking over bad contracts. And he talked about the Iran deal like it was a bad contract, that he would police so tough that they wouldn't have a chance. So he said a number of things about Iran. And he was in general less opposed to the Iran deal than say Ted Cruz was. Though if we want to understand, okay, why is he signing off on the deal? And this is what has to happen every 90 days. The president tells Congress that the deal is working and the Iranians are complying. It probably doesn't have a lot to do with like deep-seated convictions or his knowledge of the region. It's more like all of his advisors are telling him, Donald, don't pick this fight right now. Also Israel, Israel's in an interesting position here. The Iranians do seem to be complying. The Israelis know there's no good military solution to an Iranian nuclear program. The commander of the Israeli Defense Force pretty much supports the deal. Israel's ambassador to the U.S. says that Benjamin Netanyahu's position, where he was against the deal and said so in Congress, that actually bolstered Israel's image on the world stage as an actor independent of the U.S. You add all that up and you consider the fact that Trump has got a lot more to worry about and you see maybe why he's at least for now not picking a fight with Iran. And also remember, there is this other country looming over the horizon, and that one is just a bear. fill in next time for Spanning the World if there is a next time and that's it for today's show tearing the letter T off my chest I transformed just producer Mary Wilson into Marty Wilson current coach of Pepperdine Basketball though coming off the heels of a 9-22 season maybe not for long Tearing the letter off my varsity sweater, I turned just producer Chris Berube into Christ Berube, a figure of worship and devotion in several Canadian provinces. But also what Chris Berube's high school gym coach used to yell at him during dodgeball. Christ Berube, get with the program! Tearing the H off my varsity sweater, I turned Steve Licktie into Steve Licktie. See, Licktie is spelled L-I-C-K-T-E. E-I-G. Shouldn't have an H there or something so that it's not Lick-Tig? Anyway, thought I'd help. The gist. Tearing the L off my varsity sweater, I turn the gist into the list. An endless litany of my complaints, pet peeves, and issues. Because truth in advertising. Oomperoo depperoo doopperoo. And thanks for listening.